Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are pressing on in our work in Colossians, and here the team will be getting further into Colossians chapter 2. We wanted to let you know about our upcoming intensive course in the month of May. This course is titled Out of Revolution, Exploring the Theology of History. It will take place from May 16th through May 20th here in Birmingham, and will be taught by Richard Bledsoe, Peter Lightheart, and we will have special guest James Jordan here with us. As always, this course will be surrounded by worship. We will worship in the morning, noon, and evening. And the lectures will be centering around two great thinkers in the history of the church, Eugen Rosenstock Husey and Augustine. More information about the course and registration is available at the link in the show notes. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoyed this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts discussing Colossians chapter 2. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers and Alastair Roberts. James Bijan, who is normally with us, is not uh, able to be with us today. We hope he'll return in a couple of weeks uh, with a couple of new episodes. We're grateful for Brian Motes, who is uh, running the technical side of things, making sure the recording gets stored and smoothed out and edited for your consumption. Before we get started today, I wanted to mention a couple of things that are coming up at Theopolis, uh, things that uh, you can participate in. The first is uh, we are accepting submissions for the Jordan Prize for Outstanding Work in Biblical Theology. We launched this last year, and we had several submissions for the Jordan Prize. Uh, Trevor Lawrence, his Exeter dissertation on imprecatory psalms, was the winner of the Jordan Prize. Trevor was awarded $1,000 and uh, we have a write-up on our website about it if you want to take a look at that. And uh, we're currently accepting submissions for that Jordan Prize uh, coming up this next year. If you want more information about that, you can find a page on our website that describes the process for submission, the kinds of things we're looking for. Uh, We're looking for work in biblical theology, work that uh, reflects some of the interests of Theopolis and particularly the interests and, and some understanding and some exposure to the work of Jim Jordan, uh, who, uh, whose name is, uh, is given to the prize. So if you're a PhD student working on a dissertation in biblical theology, if you've recently defended a dissertation, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for recently finished dissertations, and uh, we, well, we hope that some of you will be willing to do that, and then we'll have uh, work that we can review for that purpose. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is that we're, we're open for registration and application for the fellows program. We have several signed up for next year. We had 13 fellows this past year, had a really good turnout and a good class. We're hoping to equal that this next year. Again, you can go to the website and you can find an application process for the fellows program. The fellows program is the, the main program at Theopolis. It's the place where you, it's the program you go through if you want to get a exposure to our biblical theology, the Theopolis biblical theology, if you want to get exposed to liturgical theology from a Theopolis perspective, that's the place where you want to go. We have a, it has a summer session. We'll start in July. Uh, There are online sessions, uh, seminars going through the fall, and then we return in January for a second in-house session here in Birmingham. And uh, Alistair 
we trust will be there teaching this week, uh, this, this next year, this summer. Uh, Jeff Myers will be there teaching and others will be participating in that fellows program. So if you're interested in getting a fuller understanding of what we're trying to communicate, what we're assuming really in these podcasts as we're dealing with specific texts, the fellows program would be a good place to get that exposure and that, uh, that background. We're in the middle of a series of studies in Paul's letter to Colossians. We've looked at Paul's theology in general. We looked at uh, Paul's use of epistles as a particular mode of communication with the churches and what that does and what that means for uh, Paul's ministry. And we have uh, gotten through the first chapter of Colossians over a number of weeks. And uh, we touched on the early part of Colossians 2 last time. And we're starting roughly at, at verse 8. Um, N.T. Wright in his commentary suggests that uh, Colossians 2, 6, and 7 kind of states the theme of the entire letter. Have you received Christ? So walk in him. The way you walk is determined by the way you've received. And so walking in Christ is the theme of the letter and, and maintaining and continuing in, in what you've, uh, and continuing in the walk that you've started when you received the word of God and were baptized into Christ. Uh, so we're going to be looking over the next couple of episodes, we're going to be looking at basically at Colossians 2, 8 through 23. And uh, it does seem like there's at least a roughly chiastic structure in those in that section. At least you can identify particular words that are repeated in uh, strategic places that lay out a kind of a kind of chiastic outline. Paul refers to the elementary principles of the world, the stoicheia to cosmu in verse 8. He also warns against the tradition of men. And those terms... Uh, elementary principles of the world, and also the commandments and teachings of men come up at, come again at the end of the chapter in verses 20 and 22. So you have a frame around the around this section uh, speaking about the elements of the world and about human authorities and human teaching and human tradition. Uh, within that, you have references to Jesus as the head in verse 10, and then again in verse, verse 19, holding fast to the head. Then you have a reference to specific Jewish customs and practices. Verse 11 refers to circumcision and assures the Colossians they've actually been circumcised, not with physical circumcision, but they've been circumcised with the circumcision of Christ. Uh, that's in verse 11. And then verse 16 uh, refers to food, food laws and refers to the calendar of Israel, again, referring to specific practices of the Jews uh, so that frames the central section, which uh, I, I'm locating roughly in verses 13 through 15, or verses 14 and 15, which speaks about Jesus taking away the, the certificate, the decrees that were against us, Jesus triumphing over the rulers and authorities and the powers, and subjecting them to a public display. Uh, that's at the center of the passage. Now, all the way through this passage, the, the accent is on uh, maintaining that union with Christ and that connection with Christ. We go back to verse six, as you have received Christ the Lord, so walk in him. And all the way through this passage, we have these references to what we have in Christ. Uh, in Christ is all the fullness of deity. That's in verse nine. And you are in Christ. In him, you were circumcised. You've been buried with him in baptism. It's a variation of that same phrase. You're made alive together with him. All of the old covenant regulations and all the old covenant practices were shadows of the body that is Christ. That's in verse 17. Let no one defraud you of the prize, Paul says in verse 18. And the prize that he's talking about is Christ. 
Because we have died with Christ to the elements of the world, we don't have to keep the regulations of the old world. So the contrast is always, Paul has various terms for the things that he's telling the Colossians not to cling to, not to adopt, but always the thing that he tells them and urges them to adopt and cling to is Christ himself. That's where they're going to find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They don't need to supplement it with any kind of wisdom that's coming from outside with human traditions. They don't have to supplement with anything coming from the old world because everything that they need is in Christ in whom are all the fullness of deity dwells. Uh, so uh, that, that Christ, Christ-centeredness is, uh, is crucial to Paul's argument throughout this section, in, in fact, throughout the letter to the Colossians. Pretty strong warning there in verse 8, beware, be on your guard. You know, the ESV says, see to it, but it's the same word that Paul uses also in Philippians 2 when he warns them against the dogs, the mutilation, the circumcision. So this is, this is pretty serious. I mean, you can, I think you mentioned this, Peter, in your introduction, you can be carried off as booty. <laughs> Verse eight, see to it that no one takes you captive. Uh, you can be uh, basically uh, carried off and uh, become a slave to these things. Um, and there's also the, uh, other warnings in here about falling away and, uh, you know, not, not holding fast to the head. Uh, verse 19. So whatever Paul is dealing with here, it's, it's serious business uh, for these Christians. They're, they're in great danger if they don't hold fast to Jesus and recognize it in him, united to him. They have everything they need. They don't need to go back to what is now empty, an empty, uh, vacuous system, uh, human tradition, um, a way of organizing and living in the world, which now ha- doesn't have the same kind of meaning in, in, and power that it did before Christ. And the fact that the word translated take you captive is likely a pun upon the word synagogue gives the impression that these are Judaizing teach- teachers that might want to imprison them within the, um, the, the Jewish traditions that had come down from the father's and that this actually stands opposed to the word of God and ends up putting heavy burdens upon people. Yeah, that's a point that Antti Wright makes. Uh, synagogue is uh, synagogue and sulagogon is uh, take captive. You have uh, a slightly different term, but I think uh, it, it makes sense that that's a pun. And that what Paul has in mind are the, are the uh, Judaizers that are trying to trap the Colossians back into an old system. I, mean, I think it's important, Alice, you, you made a reference to this. It's important to see that what Paul is opposing here is traditions of men, verse 8. Later on, he talks about human commandments, traditions and uh, commandments and teachings of men in verse 22, which is the same target that Jesus has in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus is not attacking Torah. In fact, he's defending Torah what, from what he, th- what he claims are distortions of Torah. The Pharisees and the scribes have undermined the word of God for the sake of their traditions. Torah is about mercy, justice, and truth, and they've distorted Torah by the way that they read and the way they, they, uh, they add to it. And so uh, what Paul's opposing here is not, he's not dismissing the old covenant or uh, old covenant commandments. That's not what he's opposing. He's opposing tradition, the tradition of men, the same thing that Jesus does. But at the same time, he is saying that is the, the people of Colossia have come out of the old world into a new world, 
And so even the, even the divine regulations of the, of the law, circumcision, for example, that's not a tradition of men, but circumcision is no longer relevant to the Colossians who are Gentiles coming into the church. And we'll, we'll get to that, uh, the reasoning for that in just a second. But uh, there's continuity between Jesus and Paul in what they're targeting here. Yeah, I think that's also important, and just rushing ahead a little bit when we get to the end of this chapter. And we have Paul giving us admonition not to submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Uh, and if you don't read that, like you said, Peter, in the context of uh, the tradition of the elders, the human tradition, the oral law, um, and especially uh, verses 16 through 19, all the um, the additions that the um, uh, scribes and Pharisees have added to the law. You'll get the you you'll make a mistake of thinking, oh well, there are no more regulations anymore. There are no more thou shalt nots, um, and that that that's all legalistic. You know, no one no one can tell you what to do, or no one can point you to commandments anymore. But that's so inaccurate because well, at, Paul in Colossians will give a series of admonitions and regulations. Um, beginning in the middle of chapter three. So that doesn't quite work. It's not just law in general. It's a specific, it's a specific way of using, conceiving, and living um, the law outside of Christ, apart from how Christ has brought it to an end uh, to its goal. Part of what's going on here is what James Jordan has discussed on a number of occasions is this movement to maturity, um, this movement beyond the age of childhood and the sorts of things that are characteristic of childhood to maturity in Christ. And it's very often that we tend to talk about um, the new covenant in ways that downplay or miss the significance of that movement to maturity. It's something that comes out in places like Hebrews. It comes out at several points within the writings of Paul. And elsewhere, we see that the movement is not merely from um, unbelief to belief, but from a childlike order to uh, an order for mature people in Christ. And that requires a different sort of administration. I think you see it even within the, the rhetorical approach that Paul adopts. Whereas if you're reading this in the Old Testament, you might expect the rhetorical form of command, do this, don't do that. And the people respond with amen to uh, affirm what's been said. Um, here and elsewhere in Paul, he tries to engage the will and understanding through persuasive rhetoric in ways that help people to understand the good that is maintained in the um, injunctions and the um, the exhortations that he puts forward. He's not just wanting them to go along with it as a mere act of obedience. He wants them to understand why they're they are doing it, what's at stake, and how this is a matter of their willing obedience of Christ. It's an obligation, yes, but it's something that also calls for their wills to be involved, um, not just to be done under compulsion or coercion. Yeah, that emphasis on maturity, I think, comes out pretty dramatically in verses 9 and 10, in the way that Paul uses the notion of fullness. So verse 9 is about Christ. We just mentioned Christ at the end of verse 8. In him, all the fullness, the pleroma of deity dwells in bodily form. And then immediately, verse 10, in him. 
So you have a Christ as a kind of meeting place for the fullness of God and Colossians and all other believers. Christ is the one in whom those two are joined. And then he goes on, in him, you have been made complete. That's plerao. It's, a, it's the verb form of the same term that he used in verse 9. So the fullness of God that's in Christ, because we're attached to Christ, we have been made full or complete or mature in him, the one who is the head of overall rule and authority. And it almost, it, I think there's, um, Michael Gorman has uh, talked about this in a number of books, talked about a, a kind of doctrine of deification in Paul. He sees a theopoiesis, at least, that there's a kind of growth and maturity and glorification in the image of God. We're coming to the completion in, as human beings. The coming to completion of, as human beings means becoming more fully godlike, becoming more fully images of God. And we seem to have a, some, a play on that in verses 9 and 10. Uh, because Christ is the fullness of God, which is available to us to bring us to a proper human fullness. That fullness also is um, seen in the fact that you have a sevenfold use of in him and with him in this section from 9 through 15. So there is a numerological fullness there as well in the, in the passage. But the other thing I say, Peter, about, about that, your deification issue is in chapter 3, verse 3, you died. Well, we're going to get to that in a minute in chapter 2, how, how we died in the flesh of Christ. But your life is now hidden with Christ in God, which is, in my, to my mind, one of the most remarkable sentences in the whole New Testament, that somehow united with Christ, we have, we've been inserted into the life of the Godhead. Um, so there's, it's not just that we are being enabled to be human again, you know, we rehumanized, uh, the image of God is reestablished and, and, uh, and, and grows and develops in us, but somehow we have come to our end, uh, our goal of being uh, incorporated into uh, the life of the Godhead in, in some significant way. Yeah, that's, that's a, good, a good connection there with chapter 3. Uh, the other thing I was going to say that um, highlights the point that Alistair is making about maturity is the way that Paul contrasts verse 8, being taken captive through deception, and then he has two descriptions of the, deceiver, the deceptive uh, philosophies, the tradition of men and the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. Three, three prepositional phrases all begin with kata. The first two are the things that you should avoid. The last one is according to Christ. And then he goes on to say that in Christ is the fullness, and we've been made full in Christ, who is the fullness of God. But um, the elementary principles, that sorkea to kosmu is the phrase. Uh, that's a, a term that's, it has a, a variety of different connotations in Greek. It uh, can refer to the physical materials of the most basic physical matter, so uh, elements, and same, same kind of ideas we have in our uh, chemical theories today, that there are certain elements, for the Greeks there weren't nearly as many as we have, but certain elements that are the basic constituents of things. Uh, Storkia also can refer to uh, the basic principles or the building blocks or uh, the elementary teachings, like the, what you'd learn in elementary school, uh, the ABCs, the ABCs of any course of study. Uh, and so what Paul is, uh, what these philosophers are offering 
in Paul's reckoning, uh, surely they're offering a way of greater fullness and greater maturity. They're offering a way to uh, a higher life. But the way Paul characterizes it is it's a reversion to childhood. It'd be like going back from, you know, you finished your PhD and now you're going to go back to elementary. You're going to start it with elementary school now that you've completed your, uh, completed your training. Uh, that's the kind of reversion that Paul's warning against. In my book on the elements of the world, I suggest that elementary principles, I'd suggest that they have to do with the, uh, I think I call them the social religious constituents or building blocks of the old creation. So practices that are mentioned here, like food laws, avoidance of, uh, avoidance of unclean things, so purity rules, circumcision is part of the ABCs of the old world. And what, what uh, both here in Colossians and in Galatians, it seems that Paul is putting both Judaism and paganism under the same umbrella. Both of them are forms of elementary school, as it were. Now Christ has come. And uh, to revert either to paganism or to Judaism is to go backwards into the old world and back into, uh, back into childhood. And that reversion of childhood is also seen as a state that is similar to that of the slave. In Galatians, this comes out more fully where he talks about the state of the child prior to their entrance into the inheritance being similar to that of a servant. And here, I think the same underlying um, argument is at play, the idea that to revert to that is to come under the rule of something that holds, suppresses you, um, prevents you from attaining to the fullness that is your prerogative in Christ, and is something that um, places these rudiments of the creation over you in a way that it's like putting the stabilizers back on your bike once you've learned to cycle very well. Uh, it's not a very helpful thing to do, and it can limit what you're able to achieve. And this movement back to this old age is one that is characterized by departure from the fullness of Christ and a number of different fronts. Um, the, the focus here is a sort of philosophy or empty deceit. And we can, we can maybe reflect upon a shadow reading of what would actually these Judaizers be arguing for. You can imagine, as we've argued in our discussion of Acts before, that they might see this as a sort of eschatological vision of the fullness of the law. Christ has made the system work. He has universalized it. And now everyone enters into this Torah system. And yet, that's not what Paul is saying, and it's so important within his theology that that needs to be opposed. Rather, Christ has brought us beyond this age of the Torah, this age of childhood, this age of being under a guardian, to the age of, of majority. And in that majority, we act as those who enjoy full prerogatives of sonship. And sonship within Scripture is not just the sonship that we might think of primarily as the sonship of the, the child that enjoys intimacy with their father, but the sonship of the mature um, son that can act on behalf of their father, who can um, enjoy all the inheritance of their father, who can be commissioned by their father. And this, I think, is something that Paul sees as being directly challenged and undermined by this reversion to the era of the law. 
Yeah, this this way of characterizing the a change from the old to the new, the transformation of the old in Christ in the new world. This is enormously helpful just for understanding the entire Bible. I'm quite sure it was decades ago that I got this perspective from James Jordan and have continued to see it over and over everywhere in the scripture, um, especially the New Testament and how it how it describes uh, the transition from the old to new. The other way to uh, characterize the old world or the stokeia is flesh, sarx. And you get that here in Paul in verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So that Jesus in his flesh, in, in the old created human nature, um, in the old mortal nature that he bore, uh, stood for all of the old dead flesh of creation. And as he underwent this circumcision without hands on the cross, the old flesh is rolled back. And on the eighth day, the new flesh emerges or a new, uh, new life. And so the, the flesh, Paul's going to kind of end with this at the end of verse of chapter two, uh, this indulgence of the flesh or this trying to satisfy the flesh that characterizes the old world. That is no longer our mandate to try to satisfy or gratify the flesh. But now we, in Christ, we've been given a new life. And that's not just a religious thing. It's not just a interior kind of personal uh, or orientation change for people. This is a whole new way of organizing human life around Jesus Christ, not around temples, not around central sanctuaries, not around sacrifices, not around animal sacrifice, not around food taboos, not around moon oriented festivals anymore. All of this is changed. Uh, that's all the flesh. That's all the uh, old elements of the world. Now in Christ, everything's different. And I, th I think once people see this, it's kind of, it's enlightening. I've noticed for seminary students to begin to see this as uh, important for New Testament uh, theology. Passages come to life, and you're able to understand passages that seem to be uh, opaque before. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And you you imply this, but I'll say it more directly: that the the phrase "circumcision of Christ" at the end of verse eleven is talking about the cross. It's in that because we're in Him, and He's circumcised on the cross. His death is the stripping away of flesh. It's the end of his fleshy life. And if we're in him, then we're dying to the flesh on the cross. And as verse 12 goes on, we'll get to this, but uh, verse 12 goes on. I think it's saying the baptism is the way that we're united to that circumcision of Christ that took place on the cross. I just wanted to highlight one other dimension of this. It, you're it's implicit in all that you were saying, Jeff. The odd phrase in verse 11 of the removal of the body of the flesh uh, so you have the combination of terms that seems redundant uh, because we think of bodies and flesh as being basically talking about the same thing. Paul has a pretty specific idea of what he means by flesh. And maybe the, maybe the basic way to talk about it is to say that 
fleshly life is life in Adam and throughout the Old Covenant. Even the regulations of the Old Covenant, even Israel, they were living in the flesh. And it's by the stripping off of flesh on the cross and being raised in the Spirit that Jesus brings in this new way of life in the Spirit. But I think the body part there, I suspect that the body part there, I'm not talking about a body part. I mean, the reference to the body, that's what I mean. The reference to the body in verse 11 has a corporate connotation, as it does, I think, uh, elsewhere in the passage. Verse 17, we'll get to this next time, I suppose, but the shadow of what is to come, but the, the substance or is the body is of Christ. I think that's talking about the corporate reality. Uh, what's removed is the flesh, but what's removed is a body, a corporate body, a social body that is organized by flesh, by fleshly markers like circumcision, by fleshly descent, you know, descended from Abraham, descended from a particular tribe. When Paul talks about the advantages he has according to the flesh in Philippians 3, he's talking about all, his, all of his inheritance that he has by virtue of his birth as a Jew and his achievements as a faithful Pharisee. Those are all under the heading of flesh. But at one time, there was a body of flesh. There was a corporate reality, Israel, that was organized according to flesh with regulations that pertain to the flesh. That's That whole system, that whole corporate reality is what's stripped off in the circumcision of Christ. And we participate in that new life by, uh, by being baptized into him. That anthropology and sociology that we see bound up with words like body and flesh is incredibly sophisticated in Paul. We see it also connected with the works of the flesh, the particular ways of life and practices that are characteristic of this realm, something that Paul really explores in places like Galatians chapter 5. Another aspect of this is the way in which the movement in Scripture is not to a rejection of sacrificial worship, for instance, not to a rejection of temples, not to a rejection of um, law, um, but to the humanizing of all of these things. The substance is in Christ. Christ is um, the one in whom God dwells in human flesh. This is the full meaning of the temple. He's the one in whom the law has come in person. He's the one who is the true sacrifice. And so what we see is a movement from these elements of the world, the animals, the buildings, all these sorts of things that formally regulate the old order to a humanization of these things. And so within the new covenant, the emphasis is not upon the rejection of all of these realities, but the humanization of them. So our true sacrifice is seen in things like baptism as our very bodies are offered in Christ um, as a unified sacrifice or in the way that our bodies collectively and also individually are temples of the Holy Spirit in Christ, or the way that through the new covenants, the law is written upon our hearts by the Spirit. And that movement is something that I think underlies so many of Paul's arguments in places like this. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I'm, I'm noticing that um, preaching through Hebrews as well, is that seems to be one of Paul's Paul insists. On, I mean, for example, the, the common passage that we often quote as uh, important for the doctrine of Scripture, you know, uh, the Hebrews 4 passage, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Well, if you think about that, Paul's, Paul's using sacrificial imagery, the imagery of a priestly knife that cuts and slices and divides, kills, division of soul, division of spirit, but also prepares division of 
joints, division of inward parts. Uh, and all of this now is applied to the way the word of God is spoken in the community and heard and received and what it does and the power that it has over uh, the community, uh, the power, the, the killing and the preparing uh, that it does for our approach to God or God's drawing near to us or drawing our, us near to himself. Um, that's, that's really fascinating and I think important uh, because it's all through the New Testament. All the sacrificial imagery is now applied to human interactions, um, human, human interactions with God and God with us, but also with one another as well, and really deserves more attention than we usually give it, um, just to go through the New Testament and see how the apostles apply temple imagery, sacrificial imagery, even purity laws and whatnot, not so much anymore to food, but to, but to what all that pointed to, Christ and his people and this new social, social reality, uh, this new ordering of life under the lordship of Christ. Yeah, I think that's such a superior way to describe the, the shift. I mean, traditionally, you often have the idea that the new covenant spiritualizes old covenant patterns and practices. And um, in one sense, that's true, because you're talking about a, a, a life in the spirit, a, a, a body that's filled with the spirit of the risen Christ in the new covenant. But I think humanization is much more what's going on in the New Testament. And it makes it means that all these Old Testament practices still are in play. Uh, and they still give wisdom for understanding the life of the church, because uh, this, this is, in fact, what we're doing. I, I, I frequently cite Augustine in this context. Augustine insists that the true sacrifice is not what Old Covenant Israel did. Uh, they were performing shadows of true sacrifice. True sacrifice is what Jesus did in the first instance. And then what we do in Christ, in our uh, living lives of as uh, we live, we live as living sacrifices. We offer sacrifices of praise. That human sacrifice is actually what the what true sacrifice is all about. I think that's I really think that's an important an important emphasis. And again, in contrast to what, the way it's often characterized, which uh, ends up kind of everything goes from being a public part of a public uh, community, part of a public society. All the practices of Israel are practices of a nation. And then it gets privatized uh, when you talk about spiritualization. If you talk about humanization, you got to transition from the public corporate reality of Israel to the transformed Israel uh, and fulfilled Israel of the church. And, and don't you think that that humanization was already present in seed form in the old covenant uh, world? I mean, couldn't wouldn't a Jew looking back at Genesis 22 uh, and seeing that uh, on Mount Moriah, Abraham offers his son, his and uh, was going to offer his son, but then that son is replaced by an animal, which means that all animal sacrifice is really about human sacrifice. Or, for example, also in the obvious case of circumcision, circumcision as a physical ritual had a meaning that went beyond, well, what did it mean to? An Israelite. Well, we, we have references to circumcise your heart, you know, live in a certain way because of your circumcision. You're, you're, uh, you're claimed and named by God. You, you bear his name now, so uh, live it in a glorious way, not an empty way. So I think faithful Israelites reflecting on that would have seen it. But I mean, 
there's no way even angels wanted to look into this. There's no way anybody could have realized just how humanizing it was until the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form in Jesus. And then everything starts coming together, what it was all about. The example that you give of circumcision, um, Jeff, is the issue that Paul raises in verse 11. The idea of circumcision is of a practice that is connected with logic of sacrifice can think about the ways that circumcision, for instance, is practiced on the eighth day, the same day that animals are first able to be sacrificed. There's also this way in which circumcision marks out people by um, dealing with a particular one of their members, a member that is the concentrated symbol of the force of the flesh, so all it's the flesh connected with virility, with um, the sense of pride and all these sorts of things that speak to man's own agency and his own sense of control. And yet in the circumcision, um, there's a pruning of that. Um, there's a very helpful treatment of this in the work of Howard Albert Schwartz's The Savage in Judaism or something like that. But in Christ, what we have is that whole principle of flesh dealt with in a final and definitive way. This is not just a matter of cutting off part of a particular organ to symbolize something. There's a sense in which the actual reality has occurred. And so um, just as we see in the Old Testament throughout these particular occasions, the flesh had to be cut off as a sort of preparatory thing for coming near to God. You have to deal with the flesh and cut off the flesh in that symbolic location, lest you be cut off with all flesh. But now in Christ, um, on the cross, flesh has been cut off in a more definitive way through his death. And so the human meaning was already present in some sense, in a promissory and uh, reality-filled promise form in the practice of circumcision. And yet it always looked forward to this fuller dealing with the problem of flesh that we have in Christ. And so in Christ's cross, that whole anthropological principle that lies at the heart of the power of sin, death, the law, that whole complex is dealt with. And Christ's death um, strips away its power. And as a result, to actually go back to circumcision after that is to nullify the full meaning of what the cross means. It's in the cross that circumcision finds its telos, finds its full force. And so to pursue circumcision over against that is actually to neglect or, or reject everything that the cross really means. It's to suggest that we're looking to something else or that circumcision as the um, type of what was to come is the reality rather than that which really prophetically witnesses to something that will come in Christ. Right. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly the logic here, that uh, um, circumcision is fulfilled in the circumcision of Christ on the cross. And it's um, not only uh, it's a reversion to the shadow when the reality has come, uh, and it's, it's also unnecessary. That's part of Paul's argument is uh, you have a circumcision. That's how... That's how verse 11 begins. You are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. 
And then the continuation in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, I think the, the logic there is not exactly as uh, many Reformed have argued, it's not exactly a replacement of the practice of circumcision in the Old Covenant with the practice of baptism in the New. It's rather the fulfillment of circumcision in the Old Covenant in the stripping off the flesh of Christ on the cross. And we're united with that circumcision, that, that uh, accomplished circumcision through baptism as we're buried with him, raised with him, so that the power of resurrection can work in us. So there's no need to go back to circumcision because we've already been circumcised. Like, you know, it's as nonsensical as being circumcised twice. If you've already been circumcised uh, through union, baptismal union with the circumcision of Christ, there's no need for another. And I also want to point out, I mean, this is typical in Paul, that baptism becomes the marker, and not just a marker, but an effective marker of the transition from the old to the new. So the old world of the elementary principles uh, the old world that he's going to describe in later in the chapter two, uh, the old world of regulations, uh, you've died to that world. He goes on to say in verse 20, you've died uh, to the elementary principles of the world. Why do you pretend, why do you act as if you still live in the world? You don't live in the world anymore. And the mark and the effective mark of that transition is burial with Christ in baptism and uh, re- being raised to new life on the other side of baptism. So as in, as in Romans 6, baptism is that marker of the transition from uh, the, old to, the old to the new, from being in Adam to being in the new Adam. What do you all make of Paul moves on in verse 13 and 14 to talk about trespasses? So we're dead in trespasses, and then we're forgiven all our trespasses. And then the, the record of our debt is canceled with its legal demands. And this is all nailed to the cross. Um, so is there a connection between, it seems like there is, especially when he moves to verse 15, a connection between trespasses and the debt that man owes and the elemental principles of the world, uh, the rulers and authorities. So, not only do you have the system changed, but you have the liabilities that were incurred, that were built up, that were piled up under the old world, also taken care of by Jesus on the cross. I like the way N.T. Wright deals with this, where he talks about that in Ephesians 2 and elsewhere, you have the idea of the law as the, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And he talks about the fact that the law is an obstacle in two different ways. It shuts up the Jews and it shuts out the Gentiles. And dealing with the law in both of those respects is removing an impasse. And in both of those respects, it's decisively dealt with by Christ on the cross and the burden that he bears of it. So on the one hand, it's the the handwriting that we have here. And then that, I think, is particularly referring to the Jews, I think in the other way, it's the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that shuts off, shuts out the, the Gentiles from participation. It's the removal of that dividing wall of hostility. I do wonder whether the what we're supposed to make of the, the handwriting here um, is this, um, how is this to be understood? Is it maybe a reference back to the law of jealousy in um, Numbers chapter five, or is there something else going on? Yeah, I didn't think of the law of jealousy, but I thought about um, divorce, uh, a, uh, a decree of divorce 
Deuteronomy 24 and had in mind. And interesting, the emphasis on handwriting, that, that's the word hand is part of the word there. So it um, puts me in mind of uh, Daniel 5 and the, the, the handwriting on the wall. But I, I wonder if, it, yeah, I hadn't thought about the jealousy test. I, that may be in view and some kind of reference to a set of, set of regulations or transgressions that uh, would separate Israel from God. And that's been dealt with in Christ. There's um, contrasted with the circumcision made without hands. Up in 11, you have a circumcision made without hands, but then you have handwriting. Uh, it's an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah, interesting. I was going to raise a question about trespasses too, Jeff, a little bit different from yours. And I was going to refer back to Romans 5, where it seems to me that Paul is using that term in a specific sense, not just referring to sin, uh, but referring to sin that is a disobedience to a particular commandment. So many did not sin in the way that Adam sinned. Adam sinned having been given a direct command of God, and he transgressed that. Israel sins in the same way. There seems to be a distinction in that passage between what, uh, what the kind of sin that Israel commits in the face of direct revelation in Torah, as opposed to what the Gentiles commit. But that doesn't seem operative here. He's using the word for transgressions or trespasses, but he's talking clearly talking about uh, Gentiles, because you're dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So um, I guess the transgression is just being used in a more general sense here, rather than uh, the more specific one he uses, Romans 5. Is it possible that the uncircumcision of your flesh has a more generic reference to all men, uh, not so much the right of circumcision of Jews, but, uh, but just the fact that the world um, was yeah. uncircumcised until Jesus on the cross, you know, put off that body of flesh. Interesting. I, so, so anyone who doesn't share in the circumcision of Christ Yes. Is treated as uncircumcised. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. So it's not so much referring to Gentiles as it is just to the whole, the whole world, the whole body of flesh before Christ. Yeah. Might be worth thinking more about the difference between circumcision and baptism here. That baptism or circumcision is almost has a prophylactic character. That you're characterized by flesh. It's symbolically concentrated on the male genitals. Um, to the extent that Paul can talk about it and elsewhere and the Old Testament can talk about flesh in reference really to um, male genitals and that dealing with the flesh there um, in a symbolic location has a sort of prophylactic purpose but it doesn't actually change anything of the underlying reality of the flesh the flesh is still there it's being protected um, from the Lord's judgment when his holiness comes near and the need for circumcision at key moments just before the judgment of Sodom. That's when it's given in chapter 17 of Genesis. You have Moses having to circumcise his son in chapter four of Exodus before the Lord's judgment comes. The circumcision that they have to have um, for the Passover. And then again, as they're about to enter into the land and judgment is about to come there. As the Lord's holiness comes near, you need to have this prophylactic protection. Um, but the flesh is not dealt with. Whereas baptism is about newness of life. It's about being connected with being born again. It's connected with 
a more general renewal, dying and rising. And in that sense, it's not just prophylactic. It's not just protecting that principle of the flesh from being exposed. The flesh is fundamentally uncircumcised. It may be protected in this particular realm and symbolically protect the whole, but only um, in Christ and in baptism do we enter into the fullness of um, the dealing with the principle of flesh at its root. It's not just um, pruning it or it's not just um, dealing with its exposure to God's holiness, but it's actually changing everything from the root up. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm